Sam Shepard is really specific about these Real coyotes. Specific. They cannot <laughs> howl. If you put a howling coyote in this play, you had better not do that. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And we are back again this week talking about another great play. This week we are talking about True West, which is a play by Sam Shepard. Um, you want to talk about just a little bit about our interaction with this script so far, just oh, in our lives? Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> this this script is uh, it's just sort of part of Jackson and I's theater collaborations. Now, we have never yeah. done it, which Alas. is a shame to both of us, I think. <laughs> uh, we separately encountered it in different dramatic literature classes and just across our lives. Then I, in a, I believe as the final for maybe my dramatic literature class, uh, acted a scene with Jackson. I played Austin, Jackson played Lee. And Jackson and I had long been looking for a two-hander to do together. And this, while it's not a two-hander, is more or less a two-hander. And so it felt like, you know, a great script for us, one that we both love. So we have wanted and wanted to do this script, and it's just not been able to happen and not been able to happen. (laughs) It maybe will happen at some point in our lives. We've got to do it before we're too old. We're probably too young now, though, so that's okay. We'll get there. We'll find that perfect age, perfect time. Someday we will do True West. On a separate note, Jackson and I both know and love an actor of our, a friend of ours who's in grad school right now. He just did a production of True West, so it felt yeah. like the right time for us to talk about this script. We won't say his name for because we didn't ask him permission first. But right, right. that's the real <laughs> friend reason. of ours who did True West. You're out there. I hope you're listening. Hope that uh, maybe you'll chime in about your thoughts on this script too. It was an interesting moment when I was reading through the script again and I hit across the lines that I had memorized and I was like, wait a minute, these words are in me somewhere. Yes, oh, I yeah. know them. That's how I played it. I remember I gave it the like same inflection that I acted it, which was probably totally wrong because I was, you know, a silly little undergraduate. Sure, yep. <laughs> we'll hit the right agent eventually for it. Well, just just for a little bit of context for uh, the play in general, this is a play written by Sam Shepard. As I said, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1983, keeping with our theme of Pulitzer-ish plays. Um, It was beat by the color purple for your random bit of trivia for the day. Which, if you're going to have a script to beat True West... Right. The color purple is the right script. <laughs> yeah, we lost the color purple. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was first produced out in San Francisco at the Magic Theater in 1980, and then uh, off-Broadway in 1980 uh, later on in that year, and that production had Tommy Lee Jones in it, which uh, more there's going to be some great trivia in this one because this play is kind of one of theater's uh, most redone, often redone plays, um, both on Broadway and off. It's one of those scripts that male actors tend to do as sort of part of their up-and-comingness. Like, I got to do my true West. We sort of had that with American Buffalo when we talked about that one, that teach Mm -hmm. is a similar character. You got to do your teach at some point in the line. Yep. Yes, indeed. So then uh, just a couple years later, after that 1980 off-Broadway, it was done at Steppenwolf in Chicago by a... At the time, pretty unknown Gary Sinise and John Malkovic, who is was quite well-known and is. And that's um, kind this... of the consummate production of the play. If if yep. you have seen or heard of a production of this play, that's probably the one of the ones that you've heard of. That's maybe, it's the capstone one. Maybe, some people would say, maybe as good as the play gets. Yeah, and certainly it reflected in its longevity. It, it went from, so that production moved to... Uh, off-Broadway again, and uh, then it was that production that got turned into a uh, PBS, one of PBS's uh, specials on American theater. It got turned into a TV movie. So if you've seen it, not in the context of theater, you have probably seen uh, Gary Sinise and John Mal- Malkovich playing those roles. 
But then it and just And I believe that going. whole thing is on YouTube. Um, I saw it several years ago on YouTube and just today looked up and watched some clips in preparation and it was still up. So hopefully what I'm telling you you should go look at is not illegal. Uh, if it is, <laughs> it's been up for many years. So I may have just right. thrown the whole thing out in the open. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dang it. He finally mentioned it. Uh-huh. <laughs> No, but then it, it so then it uh, after that it has had many other productions. Uh, there was a production with Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley that uh, was done on Broadway. There was a production with that included Dennis Quaid and Randy Quaid. Um, there was a production with Jim Belushi in it, and uh, this is the second play now that we can say uh, you can go see this play if you want to. It is on Broadway in December of 2018 with uh, Ethan Hawke and Paul Dano playing in the. In the lead roles, so this is a very a very. Do you, um, off the top of your head, know who's who? I did not look up that production before I hopped in. I do. Ethan Hawke is Lee, and Paul Dano really? is Really, yeah. I would not have. That's probably the reverse of what I would have guessed. I know. That's fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that that's that's kind of the. This is a, a very well loved and often produced play within theater. So the play, like I said earlier, is. It's sort of a two-hander. It's something like a two-hander. There are four characters. One of the lesser characters is in a few scenes. One of the lesser characters is in just the last scene. But the bulk of the play is two brothers, Lee and Austin. These are adult brothers. They have not seen each other in a long time. Austin has come to a suburb outside of Los Angeles, and uh, notably on the desert side of Los Angeles, not, I guess you can't, I mean, you can't go further out into the water, I guess, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> right, but right. <laughs> not, not, not south into the nice lands, but out, out towards the hot lands. Um, yep. So th- that's sort of the setting. These two brothers meet because Austin has come to this part of Los Angeles, this suburb, to propose a screenplay. He's come to try to make a deal on a screenplay that he's not yet written, but he's written the outline for and is just making a deal on it like you do. And his brother Lee, who he's not seen in a while, has shown up there as well. What results is that Lee, who is – gosh, how to describe him in a quick way just for the summary purposes (laughs) – a wild card, a vagrant, um, Mm -hmm. violent, Uh, he – sort of steals this idea away from Austin. He doesn't steal the screenplay, but he steals the idea of doing a screenplay. He meets with Austin's the guy who's going to buy Austin's idea and sell it to the agents, um, Saul. Lee meets with Saul, and Lee sells Saul his own idea instead of Austin's. So that's sort of the bulk of the tension of the play, is Lee, who is not a screenwriter, doesn't have a college degree, uh, doesn't really think much of art, uh, walks in and sells his own screenplay idea, and, and Austin loses the deal, loses the chance at the deal. So instead, Austin sort of takes on the life of crime that used to be Lee's past. So they sort of, in the plot, sort of pass each other, heading towards each other's backgrounds. Um, it takes place over a few days that this happens. The middle of the play contains a couple scenes with Saul, the screenwriter, or uh, the, the agent. Yeah. The very end of the play, the mother returns. So that's an important feature, too, is that the whole play takes place in their mother's house. The mother has gone on vacation, has left the house to Austin because she knows he's coming into town to sell the play so she, or sell his uh, script. So she says, well, why don't you watch the house while you're here? It gives you a free place to stay. He says, great, I'll do that. So he's staying at the house. Lee shows up. Violence, craziness, family tensions ensue. So much of the tension in this in this play has to do with uh, kind of family history. And that might be a good jumping off point to start with because we're not privy to a lot of them. Um, Some say that this is uh, the third play in a series, but even that is like walking into this play, it's not billed as that. Um, This is like, right. I don't know that you, you you probably, I don't think would, would like learn a lot of really enlightening information from reading the other two plays first. This really is a play that's its own play. Some people Mm -hmm. might tie some of Sam Shepard's plays together in some sort of loosely correlated family structure. But it's not not really like... Intended to be like backstory revealing. Right. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's just so much that we don't know. And and you get the impression right away that there's a dynamic between Austin and Lee. Um, Austin is, is... 
at least comes off in the first couple pages as kind of the subdued of the two. And Lee is the wild card, I think, is a perfect word for it. I think he is also uh, physically dominant in whatever space he's in. He does a lot of lounging in the stage directions. He does a lot more shouting initially than Austin does. Um, and he just, he kind of talks down towards Austin. How do you think, do you think I'm reading that right? Is that like their dynamic seems to at least start that way? Yeah. Whether, I mean, you know, the easy thing to do probably is to cast a physically larger actor to play Lee than to play Austin. That certainly explains a lot of the dynamic just in terms of Lee is the more, physically aggressive of the two so for him to be larger makes some sense but as you've heard from our you know from jackson saying the actors that have played it it is not always the case that the Mm -hmm. actor playing lee is much larger at all than the actor playing austin obviously john malkovich gary sinise malkovich was a bigger guy at the time he's not always actors change their body sizes but in that in that production uh gary sinise was very thin and john malkovich was not not fat but he was just larger so his yeah. physical dominance really pervaded in in that way. But I don't know that it's necessarily true that Lee is larger. What is definitely true is that he's physically aggressive and that Austin mm-hmm. is not as a response. Lee is always threatening to beat him up. He's always threatening, you know, you stay out of my business. And then, and then at one point there's a great exchange about uh, Lee does something that pisses off Austin off. So Lee goes, oh, what, are you going to kick me out now? And Austin goes, no, right. I'm not going to kick you out. And he goes, well, you couldn't kick me out. So that's off the table. <laughs> you couldn't do it if you wanted to. Yeah. So there's that kind of a – Lee is a bully, I mean, without question. I don't know – I don't know anybody listening to this who probably disagrees with that. Lee is a bully. He's a bully to Austin. He knocks him around. He he, he try he, – he sort of pretends to knock him around intellectually even though Austin's a lot smarter. But Lee sort of plays up his own intelligence, tries to, plays down Austin's as, a, as another way to assert power and dominance over him. What also seems to be true is that Lee is jealous of Austin and probably is some of the history, you know, as brothers do. Austin, you can imagine, was a fairly successful child, probably good in school. Lee describes Austin as being at one point followed around by blondes. So, you know, good with women. Um, he probably was in the right, you know, he probably was a, a just a better kid in terms of obeying his parents his mother left the house to him not lee uh so all of this you know makes lee feel like you know he needs to act out to try to assume some dominance over this kid is clearly coming up you know is, is clearly is clearly better than him you know let's just say it so there's there's this there's this push and pull of lee is trying to be the more the the force in the relationship, despite the fact that Austin is wildly more successful in, in just in life, not even just in how much money he makes. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like an, uh, a leftover from adolescence. You get the sense that these, these characters don't see each other, haven't seen each other in a long, long time. And it's just left completely picked up dynamics from when they were kids. Uh, 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 Lee is supposed to be in his 40s, and Austin is supposed to be in his, his low 30s. Uh, as per the script anyway. So you imagine that family dynamic growing yeah, up. Yeah, it's interesting. The script says early 40s for Lee, early 30s for Austin. So that's a 10-year difference that Sam yeah. Shepard imagines. So not only is this, it's not two brothers who are close in age. This is an older brother who looked at his 10 years younger brother, probably, my my interpretation, become a mm-hmm. rising star. Right. And what felt himself fail and Mm-hmm. fail and fail yeah and 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 that dynamic with that failing is he's kind of past the moments when he can do anything about it like you see the younger like a 10 year younger brother you're in your 30s when he's going to college or late 20s when he's going to college and that that option isn't it feels like it's not even on the table for you anymore at that point so that dynamic would absolutely feed into it so when he comes back and they they see each other for the first time in years. He tries to reassert that dominance. He's like explaining things too, like kind of obvious things that you're like Austin. Austin knows this, <laughs> like, but he's right. He's, like for example, um, Austin says, 
Austin is a screenwriter, obviously, so they've been talking about screenwriting a little bit. And Lee says something like, oh, I tried to do all that art stuff at one point. There's no future in it. Right. Yeah, really demeaning. <laughs> like, yeah. First of all, how do you know? <laughs> Second of all, he's about to sell a script for a ton of money to a, to a filmmaking company. So he's got some future in it. Yeah, and that it, he seems to like have this way of speaking things into existence, though, because you know he, whenever he decides on something that he wants to do, it it comes about for a little ways until he can't lie or manipulate any further. So I'm thinking specifically of him pitching the script to uh, the other character, Saul Kimmer, who is the uh, agent, or yeah, for sure the agent or the person who. Austin is trying to get his script to the studio yeah, with. I guess he's like a middleman in the film industry. Yeah. I don't know a ton about how the back end of the film industry works, but in this play, the imagining is that he has to sell his story idea to Saul, who will then sell it to companies before they write a screen. So I'm not sure totally what exactly you'd call him, um, but he yeah. certainly at some point in the play decides to become Lee's agent. So we are accurate in saying that he's an agent. Mm-hmm. And you go through the process of... Lee kind of crashing their first meeting and then taking him golfing. And uh, I kind of want to go into the scene after the golf scene. So he goes golfing. uh, Lee goes golfing with Saul and he comes back uh, the next morning and he's talking to Austin and he's telling him that uh, Saul liked my idea and he'd rather he'd 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 like you to write it pretty much Uh, you Austin to write it. Um, well, what's interesting and about that, that point, scene before we get to that point is yeah. that Austin is genuinely excited for Lee, or at least you could play him that way. You know, sure. you could play him sarcastic, I guess. I imagine him fairly genuinely excited for Lee. He Lee has somehow, beyond all odds, managed to yeah. sell what seems to be a fairly stupid story idea for a modern Western about guys who chase each other across Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to Saul for for like a verbal contract. And, you know, Austin says, well, he told you he was going to do it. He gave you a verbal contract. And Lee says, yeah, yeah, he's very into it. He gave me his word. And Austin says, well, he never does that. I know Saul. I mean, that's a big deal. Way to go. He pops out champagne. And then yeah. the crucial revelation comes almost as an aside. I'm not sure Lee even really understands the weight. He just sort of tosses mm-hmm. it away that, oh, you're going to write the screenplay. And Austin says, what are you talking about? I'm writing my own screenplay. And Lee says, no, we're doing mine instead of yours. And you wonder throughout the scene if he's lying or not. Like, And Austin wonders oh, yeah. throughout the, the scene whole whether play, he's lying or not. you wonder if he's lying or not. Yeah, what level of lie he's in. But, you know, it turns out Saul comes back the next day and whatever Lee did, Saul says it in front of Austin that he wants the script. Which is just And like, that other people want the script. I mean, yeah. Saul says that people are clamoring over each other to have a chance at producing this script. What the you know, what 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 Lee says happened on the course is that Lee made a bet with Saul to if he you know, if he won the game or if he made this putt or whatever the bet was, that he would uh, that he'd produce the movie. And Austin's point is when Saul comes back then is you don't like the script. You just lost a bet. But that point seems to sort of be lost in the din a little bit as Saul says, I mean, regardless of how I got the script, you know, regardless of how I decided to do it, people want to see it made. So it's a moot point now, whether I lost a bet or whatever, we've got people who want to buy it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he just, I mean, he just like straight up bald face bluffs his way into (laughs) things working for him. Uh, and and that kind of like every so often you see him just kind of going with his gut in terms of this. Like he comes back with a TV when he crashes their meeting. He's just this that he's assumedly stolen from someplace, and he's just this wild card of a character. I, I love that you use that word because he's you never know what Lee is going to do in, both in a scene or when he comes back to a scene. Right? Yeah. I mean, late in the play. He's he's trying to write Lee is trying to write the screenplay on his own. Austin has decided not to help him, and he he he's writing. He can't really do it. It's just it's not he's not talented enough. He doesn't have enough. You know, he just is. He he can't get the words out. He's not great at English. He's not very smart. At least in book smart, kind of writing smart, artistically smart. 
And so the, the scene ends with him still trying to write it. The next scene opens and he's beating the typewriter over the top with a golf club <laughs> and throwing pages of his script into a fire that he started in the kitchen. So that's the kind of wild card you're dealing with. The scene ends with him writing a script. Next scene begins with him breaking the typewriter with a golf club. Yep. And so let's let's talk about his lying a little bit. I'm, I'm interested in, in a couple of things, whether or not they're true. Um, first of all, there is a mention early on, I think I've already said this, that Lee says he's he's dabbled a little bit in the arts. First, your first instinct would be to say, there's no reason why this could be true. You're just lying to intimidate Austin. But then later on, as Lee is starting to realize that it's going to be very hard for him to write this screenplay, he says something curious to Austin. He says something like, this is my last chance to get this done. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to be talking about like just to make money. the line is a little more specific than that. I've got to get this script sold. This is my last chance to get this done. And his script idea is fairly flushed out. I personally don't get the sense that he's making it up on the spot. So has Lee dabbled in the arts? I mean, what does he mean by that? I, I, you know, my first instinct was just that he's lying. That still could easily be the case. But then that Mm -hmm. line later on about Maybe he's tried to do this script before. Hmm. That's really interesting. Let's play around with that a little because I think you're right. He's got, I mean, he's he comes with a play that is a little, um, uh, has a couple convenient plot points. For instance, there's one point where a fully saddled horse is being pulled in a trailer for them to jump on and ride off into. Um, but still, he has is, he is clearly thought about it and he is the sort of person who would at least try it, right? Um, I, I think there there is an inclination of uh, maybe he's just watched Westerns and that is enough of him dabbling in the arts for him to, you know, be able to spitball this, basically. But, right, um, yes. <laughs> but I think I, I, that is interesting because certainly uh, Lee is the sort of person who would look at Austin succeeding and before this point try to sit down and do what Austin is doing. Because he he thinks I think he really thinks that given enough time and energy, he can do whatever whatever he wants. And he might be right. Yeah, he's got a lot of <laughs> charisma. Like this, uh, well, well uh, this is changing subjects just briefly, but I love the first scene where he meets Saul because he's been so aggressive, such a brute with Austin, and then he he accidentally you can't see me quoting my fingers in the air, but I am. He accidentally walks in on the meeting between Austin and Saul, and he's a, he's, what a charmer. Oh, mm, yeah. man. It's oh, like he's yeah. got a suit and tie. I mean, not literally does he have a suit and tie, but it's it's like he's a different person all of a sudden. So yeah. there's that part of Lee where he's got a lot going for him. What he doesn't really have is resolve to finish things. Um, he doesn't maybe have a lot of unique ideas, um, for whatever reason he's failed in life as their father has. We should probably talk about the dad at some point. Yeah. But you do get the sense that Lee could accomplish anything he wanted if he, if he, if he just did it, you know, if he didn't stop midway through and give up. So I don't know what I would say Lee actually did in the arts, quote unquote, But this script seems very important to him, not just because it's going to be some money. At one point, he offers to split half and half with Austin without even caring, you know, with just sort of a whatever attitude about it. Um, yeah. It's it's like the story is, you know, it, it would almost be like he's lived the story. Like he is the guy who's been driving across Texas being chased or chasing with a horse in the back. And that really mm-hmm. happened to him. And so it's important to get this on screen. In fact, at one point he says it's come from personal experience. Right. It's a so, real story or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He says based on a true story. Now, again, Lee's a liar. That could be a lie. <laughs> right, but right. As with all characters, we you know, to, to say again, we talked about this when we talked about Teach in American Buffalo – as with all liars, there's some there's some fishing you have to do for where the truth is in the lies. And I, I mm-hmm. think that there's maybe some truth in this nugget of 
maybe he, you know, he's not been a screenwriter before, and he's definitely exaggerating when he's trying to put Austin down about the arts. But there might be something in Lee where he's worked on this story before. Yeah, I agree. There's some something you said in there. There's the the line at the end of Act One. It's a it's a short uh, little paragraph, but it's all Lee talking, and he talks about the riders chasing after each other into the sunlight. Uh, the 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 screen the the screenplay he's writing is a western. In case we haven't said that clearly enough, and there's this scene where he's he's writing having Austin write the chase scene for him. And uh, he kind of brings it to a close at the end of the act. And I'll just paraphrase it. It's I, I want to read it, but we're trying to not do that. Um, but I'll just paraphrase it that the two riders are, are the one is chasing the other and they are both afraid. Not, the, the one in the back doesn't know where the one in the front is taking him and the one in the front doesn't know where he's going at all or something like that. And that's yes. certainly. Yeah. That certainly seems to be indicative, if not of of Austin and Lee, at least of Lee. Yeah, there's um, definitely some metaphor there of Austin and Lee, but I that, I remember I you're you, thank you for reminding me there was a third piece of evidence of it I wanted to talk about too, and that was it. This this description he gives uh, Austin at the when they're writing it is so poetic. It's I mean that that description is actually good. It yeah. feels honest and. So, I mean, maybe he just magically struck gold, but maybe there's something else there. We know that he's been in the desert for months. We know that mm-hmm. he wanders around, that he's got – he always is talking about how he's got to get out of town. I think there might be a there might be some part of Lee's past which is connected with this story of being chased. He, you know, like he gets really offended when Austin suggests that this story is not like real life. Nobody runs out of gas with a fully saddled <laughs> horse in the middle of the <laughs> desert while they're being chased, Lee. That's that's stupid. And Lee is furious. And there's one sense in which it could just be that he doesn't want his brother telling him his idea is stupid. I don't like my brothers telling me my ideas are stupid either. I react fairly (laughs) angrily when they do that, even when they do it rightly as well. (laughs) But there might, there's this other level there could be there as well of him saying, what do you mean? It's not real life. It's my real life. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and you, (laughs) you imagine if there was ever to be anyone who, (laughs) who would run out of gas in Texas with a horse on its trailer, it would absolutely be Lee. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I would be And he would somehow curious. get out of it. I'd be very curious to see what Sam Shepard had imagined for where Lee comes from. What, what, if anything, maybe we're just shooting in the dark and making fools of ourselves and the screenplay is really just a story <laughs> that he's imagined. But the, I don't know. There's there's some stuff in this, the, in Lee's how much he cares about it that make me feel like there there might be something else there. But that's probably enough on that subject. I want to just not jump to the end because the end is so good. But let's try right. to stay like in the first half of the play at least for a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. I got a question for you uh, to, to kind of stay in, in the kind of the meat of the play. Uh, power, we've talked about power already, um, but the, the play itself has structures in it that play with power. What are What were some of those that that you notice within it. There's a couple big ones that I'm thinking of, but what, what were you thinking? Well, right away, there the sort of backdrop of the of the house is this sort of out into the sort of out into the desert almost place where there are coyotes. And the coyotes play a fairly big role in the night scenes. They're constantly and, and Sam Shepard is really specific about these Real coyotes. Specific. They cannot <laughs> howl. If you put a howling coyote in this play, you had better not do that. <laughs> I, I couldn't think of a threat that didn't sound terrible via this podcast. Uh, don't do it because he doesn't want you to. He says instead they're sort of yapping, barking the coyotes, almost like a pack of dogs. And actually, what's interesting is that I totally agree with that because my house is sort of out of town where I live in Arkansas, and I'm backed up to a sort of a forest, and there are coyotes back in our forest. And I agree, they don't really howl. They yap yeah. and bark, and you can hear the pack, and it does not sound like howling. So I, I totally get that. So there's this power sense, and then a couple of times throughout the play, there's mentions of the coyotes killing house pets. Um, and 
wow, I mean, what a what a brilliantly subtle metaphor of Lee and Austin. <laughs> I, if I were to write it out, I'd say Lee is this coyote from the desert, and Austin is this <laughs> house cocker spaniel. I think they say a couple times. Yeah, and yep. you know that there's there's no they don't make any verbal connections, but I think the connection is there for the audience of this this fierce desert coyote just taking this house pet by the neck and dragging him out into the desert and killing him. I mean, that's, that's totally Lee and Austin. So there's some there's some power structures of like the wild um, and its power over the suburban throughout the play too. The other thing is that Lee's a thief and he's a thief who lives in the desert. He's sort of this wild man, this nomad, vagrant. And so he just walks into people's houses and takes stuff. He has a real disdain for suburbia. Uh, and that might not be quite right. We maybe, maybe we may or may not get back to Lee. So I'll just I'll say yeah. it quick now. There is a point where Lee reveals that these like houses in suburbia are where he might have liked to grow up. Um, mm-hmm. That's sort of a tender moment for him. So that that might make what I said maybe inaccurate. But he does. And his sort dream of have a is dis- like to have a house and stuff like yeah, that. As he, well. he maybe yeah. wants to be part of suburbia, but he he has a little bit of disdain for the people of suburbia. He has a lot of confidence in his ability to just take what he wants from them. So there's this. There is constantly around the house this this power structure of the wild and suburbia. You know. More importantly, the play's not set in L.A. It's set in a suburb right up against the desert. That's a place where the yeah. wild interferes on the suburban. I definitely agree. Those are kind of the the, the greater structures. And then within the play, then, uh, I was going to bring up the keys as the other oh, man, yeah. uh, physical manifestation of power struggle right away. in the fr- So uh, Lee comes up. He doesn't have a car. Austin has a car at the house. And so right away, one of Lee's first requests is to borrow the car from Austin. And for I think I think for the first scene, if I'm remembering correctly, Austin stands firm and doesn't give him the keys. Yeah, so no but, way, I'm not giving you my car. <laughs> You're gonna go rob houses. I don't really want yeah. my car. <laughs> yep. But he needs to bribe him out of the room for when the producer comes. So he gives him the keys. Producer, I, that's what Saul is. Yes. Gosh. <laughs> There's the word. my forehead here. He's a producer. <laughs> Man, we sound stupid. <laughs> you all figured that out like a half hour ago. But yeah, we... you were like, guys, he's a producer. What guys, you, what is producer. It? Why are you fumbling for this word? <laughs> yeah, so he has to bribe uh, – Austin has to bribe Lee to get out of the house when the when the producer is coming over. And he says, okay, I'll, you can have the car. Just do whatever you want. Drive the car. Just don't come back before six. Turns out he does come back before six. But that is the last amount of – that is the last time Austin has real power over the keys – <laughs> until the end there's well, one other I, scene I'm, that he gets the yeah. keys uh, yeah that's what i was thinking of too that so yeah. he so then what lee does with the keys once he has them is uses them as leverage to get austin to write the screenplay i'm not gonna or the, actually the yep. outline the selling point thing the thing that he's gonna sell the saw he says i'm not gonna give you the keys yep. back until you write this for me so then austin they do it for a little bit before uh, before uh, before they get into a fight about the thing, and, and Lee says, well, why are you doing this? And Austin says, I'm doing this to get my keys back. And Lee yeah. sets the keys down on the table in front of him, says, there's your keys. And stage directions, I think Austin takes them. In some mm-hmm. productions, that's not what he did quite does. But he does get them back. And then, and then he actually does, I think, have power over it again, which makes it, I don't know if heartbreaking is the right word, but wild. When Lee manages to talk the keys out of him again in the same scene. Yep. That, it just, it's, it's nuts. It's like the exchange of keys is not like that exciting of a plot point. But in the context of this relationship, you're like, why would you give your yeah. keys back, you idiot? <laughs> that scene is so brilliant when, when – uh, when Lee talks, he he basically talks Austin to the point that if he doesn't give him back the keys, he is functionally a liar for everything that he had just said. Like, he, he forced Austin to basically uh, seed ground and restore their relationship in everything but the keys. So, right, because that's one of the things we haven't talked about with Lee is that his sort of – his two power plays are like aggression and dominance and then sort of like wounded puppy. 
Yeah. Like, you you hurt me. You're so much better than me. You think you're so much better. You look down on me. And so that's what he does. This brilliant power play is like, here's your keys back. You're not going to help me because you're the screenwriter. This is my last chance. I don't have another chance to, you know, do something like this. I'm just this poor guy. And Austin, like, is sort of guilted into being the one who then comes back after having been <laughs> just berated, comes back and yep. says, it's okay. You know, I, I'm happy to help you write the script. You can borrow the right. car whenever you want. And Lee turns right back around and is like, okay, then give me the keys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, by, by the way, I've been meaning to ask, I need to borrow the car again. Can I have the keys? And then just, uh, oh, man. So right away, right away, the power is back in his hands, and you don't get that again till the end of the script. And as a way to get toward the end of the script, um, I want to talk about the set um, as we go through it. The set goes from a state of pretty, um, what you imagine is kind of pristine suburban. Um, you imagine right, and, I mean, a, an older woman lives here by herself. So yep. you know, I and it's I don't think it's a big house. It's sort of that classic one level smaller house that would be out in kind of the west that you'd think of. My grandma lived in a house that I think would be pretty similar. So that's sort of what I imagine. Fairly neat, fairly anachronistic. Like you walk into sort of a different time period than it is yeah, outside. Yeah. And you and you there is some mention of like antiques both on display and locked away that she is keeping. Uh, in the house. So it is, it is kind of like, you know, areas that you don't touch and a living room that is, is nice suburban. Um, and it slowly just devolves <laughs> throughout the play. As you see, um, he is very, uh, Sam Shepard is very specific about the set. He, he, I think he even like, I, I'll read his, that, that one stage direction because it is such like a, a call out against, yes. uh, set designers. Um, <laughs> if a stylistic concept is grafted onto the set design, it will only serve to confuse the evolution of the character's situation, which is the most important focus of the play. <laughs> so don't right. so his impose instruction a is just sort of like do it naturalistically. <laughs> yeah. Don't do anything, cre- you know, I, I shouldn't say that. He doesn't say don't do anything creative, but he says don't do anything outside <laughs> of just the bounds of realism. Um, right. That's what we're going for. It's just a realistic little house because what happens to it is I, 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 I totally understand where he's coming from because what happens to the house is so important. Yes. As they go on and these two brothers fight, let, let's see if we can just back and forth some of the things that come apart in the house throughout the course of the play. So alcohol yep. gets spilled all over. There's a ton of drinking mm-hmm. in the play. It gets poured over. At one point, Lee is pouring bottles of beer on himself <laughs> in the middle of the cool kitchen. To cool down. Right. Yep. <laughs> what, okay, so what's something else, Jackson? Let's just go back and forth. Yeah, we already mentioned the typewriter. So the typewriter is utterly destroyed, and he pulls out the ribbon. So you imagine ink is getting everywhere as well. So then there's a there's like a fire of some sort where he's burned the pages of his yep. script somewhere in the kitchen. Yep, there are uh, uh, there are like fifteen toasters arrayed, stolen along- toasters, <laughs> stolen toasters that Austin stole. Uh, so they're just like chaotically all over the counters and surfaces. The uh, the plants. So Austin is in the house to watch the plants is the idea. And there's plants all over. These plants that are alive and healthy at the beginning of the play are dead, just bone dead by the end of the play. Yep, there's uh, ran- uh my assumption is there's random like golfing stuff around. Uh, there's like, <laughs> there's he's got like a golf club full or a, a golf bag full of golf clubs that he's assumedly playing with throughout the course of the scene. Uh, the phone has gotten ripped from the wall and is thrown <laughs> on the ground. Yep, there are pieces of we already said toasters, but there's pieces of also toast that have either been thrown or ground into the carpet or <laughs> floor. Poor props team. Oh gosh. Uh, let's see. Then did all the drawers in the kitchen near the phone have been just overturned one by one, yep. pulled out and overturned? Mm-hmm. And getting along towards the end, there's shattered plates everywhere. <laughs> shattered right. plates and like antique glassware and stuff like that has to break on stage. Uh, there's more, uh, but that's probably a long enough list for you to get the point. Yeah. It is absolutely <laughs> the destroyed. The house is yeah. destroyed. You imagine the same sort of feeling you get when you walk into like a teenager's room. Like these these two have completely devolved back. That That is a great point because that's one of the things I really wanted to get at. 
some uh, for me, I think some of the I don't know the theme, the journey of the play is about these two adult men devolving into children. There's a couple of sort of pieces about that that I think sort of connect to that. One just right off the bat is their behavior, right? These are both men who have lived, have chosen to live their own lives. They're different, but you don't get the sense that their monstrosities of lives, even Lee's, which is different, is not like going into houses and destroying them. And Austin has a wife and kids and he's a screenwriter. He's a you know, fairly right. normal dude. So neither of them live in states of just destroying houses, so they, their behavior is both gone down and what happens to the house seems to sort of be an exaggeration of what might happen if you left two young boys alone in your house for a week. It's probably yeah. going to be destroyed. Uh, what, what else? Let's see. The mother is a very interesting character. She comes back yeah. and we should, we should think about the Picasso thing maybe. We may not have time to get into that today. Mm-hmm. It's a weird part. But one of the things that happens is that Austin starts to choke Lee. That we're getting towards the end of the play now with a cord. Yep. And she says something like, boys, you need to stop fighting. There's plenty of room to fight outside. Yeah. That is not what you say to your adult <laughs> men who are in your house choking each other. That's what you say to two small children when they're fighting with uh, cardboard tubes. You say, right. take it outside, please. Not to your two adult children where one is choking the life out of the other one. With a telephone cord, yeah. The other thing is that part of Austin's critique of Lee's story is that Lee's story seems to, he, he Austin says, just be about two grown men acting like children. <laughs> that they're just going yeah. out into the West to play at being children again, chase each other around. And poignantly, they are in the West, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. Austin's not from there. He's from the North somewhere. Maybe Minnesota, did they say that? Um, somewhere I don't know, somewhere yeah. North. Um, and he has come out West to sell this story. So they are now in the West. So there's this connection between the characters in the screenplay, and we've kind of talked about this a little bit, and the lives of these two men. So part of the play is about this de-evolution back into being children, back into their relationship as it was, which is not the relationship Mm -hmm. of two adult brothers. It is the relationship of two children brothers who fight everything out, who get on each other's nerves. My, me and my brothers, that is exactly <laughs> how we were. No, we didn't destroy our parents. Actually, we probably did destroy our parents' house probably several right. times over across the journey of our, the, the journey of our childhood. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't choke any of them with cords. Well, now that I say that, I probably did <laughs> choke them with cords at some point, <laughs> just in fighting. Now I, I didn't like seriously hurt them, uh, but I didn't seriously. Th- I mean, that's but... just how me and my brothers work. Now we have a different relationship as adult brothers, right. um, and we still tease each other, but we don't act like that anymore. We're not children. But Austin and Lee seem to become children when they're together again, and part of it is to connect back to what we were talking about: being in their mother's house. House. Yep. What is it for you, Jackson, about the – what do you think the connection is about being in the house and this de-evolution of behavior that goes along with the de-evolution of the house? Yeah, I think it is both the house and we also get mention of the town. Uh, Lee also yes, says this yes. town messes with your mind. Um I think it is uh, – there's, there's two things that kind of connect back to that as well. The other the, – the counteraction to uh, Lee's script being about the West is is Austin saying, I, I go into Safeway all the time. I stay up on news and I, uh, I'm current and all this business. I'm trying to like live in the, in the moment that is now and he just wants to go back to another time and stuff like that. The, the scene the, – the play ends back in that time essentially. It's two, two adolescent boys in the desert – and and a very poignant image at the end of a desert, um, uh, kind of stylized for the rest of the play. Um, but yeah, I I don't think we can talk about this this last scene without getting into the mother a little bit, um, because of that Picasso line, and um and and I'm glad you brought it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna we get we, I feel for me to make the point I'm trying to make. We got to talk about it because she comes back from her cruise in Alaska because. She sees that she thinks well, Picasso no, no, no. is she, coming she, to town. She comes back, she says, because she misses her house plants. 
Yes, On the that's way true. back, in her longing, she tries to read to sort of escape it. And what she reads is that she says that Picasso yeah. is coming to this suburban area or maybe to L.A. Mm-hmm. It's not really clear um, to, to visit the museum. Now, Jackson, did you happen to look up when Picasso died? Because I did. You know, I, after reading this. Yeah, go for it. I did not. Picasso died in 1973. This play is what? What do we say? 1983. 19. Yep. So 1980. 80 was the first production. So 1980, uh, and it's not clear maybe w- exactly what year the play is set. What is clear is that both the boys say, "Look, Mom, Picasso's dead. He died a while ago." But she is adamant that Picasso – so she is is physically either maybe because she's older and experiencing some dementia or because of the sort of the thematic nature of the play is living in the past, quite yep. literally. Living back mm-hmm. when Picasso – before Picasso died. If he died in 1973, he was still up and around to go visit museums. So we're probably talking – she thinks it's like 1970. So that's at least 10 years, maybe further, because all we know is that Picasso was alive. So that could be any of his life after he was famous. So that could be 10, 15, 20 years ago that she is sort of living. Yeah, and she's still treating them like the boys they were then. The other element is the dad, who we've only mentioned cursorily, but the dad is assumedly a uh, an alcoholic father who is living off in the desert somewhere. Um, and, uh, they both talk about both Austin and Lee talk about visiting him and heading out that way. And, uh, Austin says he gave him money. Lee says he actually hang out, hung out with him for a while. And, um, and I think that is another part of what we're dealing with here that really subtly, I don't think it's the theme of the play, but these boys came back to their home. And when, when you go back to your home, it is very easy to fall back into the patterns. And if those patterns weren't, uh, healthy ones, (laughs) Uh, within the context of uh, both their parents, but also the area as well. Um, I think we see this is maybe a little bit more psychology than the play is directly trying to do, but it's still the thought it evokes is that they have regressed back to this moment in their life, everyone. And the mom comes back and it's, and whether it's from a form of dementia or just the, the, the plot or the, the, the play saying that this is where she is, um, she hasn't she hasn't progressed either. She's stayed in stasis in this place for yeah, 10, 20 years. So and, that, and that Austin for me has at least a great monologue is. about that when he he's trying to convince Lee to take him out in the desert with him. And he says, uh, and I know the line a little bit because like this was the scene Jackson and I did. He says, yeah. There's nothing real down here, Lee, least of all me. Now what's interesting about that line is he expounds upon it. And he what he says is I keep driving down streets that I think I remember but turn out to be unfamiliar. So what's yeah. not real? This present time, the actual time we're living in is not real. These streets aren't what I remember. They're not the real streets. What is yeah. real is the town I grew up in. This present me, the least of all me, me, I'm not real right now. What was real was when I was this when I was a kid. Now he doesn't say that, but this is the town they grew up in. This is the house they grew up in. That past time is what's real. And that's where they choose to live at the end of the play, is in the past, sort of. I did I did also want to talk about one other thing, uh, and that scene connects it to it, um, is do you think what do you think about um how do you think independence plays into this for these characters and it has to do with coming back to home as well but how how do you think they treat independence within within their family within society or right so right right about i think it's the first scene lee is talking about how he's going to go steal some stuff to make some money and austin says well lee look if you need some money i can just give you some money and lee freaks out and snaps yeah. like a bell grabs him by the shirt and lifts it up and says don't say that to me don't you ever say that to me you can say that to our dad if you want you can give him money throw away but I don't need your help and that's a pretty constant refrain for Lee is I don't need you 
We've been apart. I'm fine on my own. Don't don't take care of me. I got you. What happens to Lee over the course of the play is that because he's now diving into screenwriting of all things, he decides he, he decides that he actually does need does does need Austin. Lee does need his brother. At one point, he says, "You know, I've got all these ideas in my head about characters, but I can't seem to get them down on paper." That's what you do. I need you to help me do it. So there's some dependence that Lee learns. Conversely, Austin, as we've talked about, seems fairly whipped at the beginning of the play. And I just mean sort of put down by Lee, he, not maybe dependent, but maybe in a way sort of dependent on his brother's affection, uh, dependent on his brother's moods, which just yeah. strike, just determine things. And by the end mm-hmm. of the play, he sort of realized that he's his own thing now and actually goes as far as to physically push back in that striking final scene of the play. Yeah. I'd agree because it's all the way until the end because they both are playing. They're both on this journey of this. This uh, they meet in the middle and kind of cross journey of uh, of career of Austin. First. Austin is what career is one of the things that they cross journey on, right? Criminal <laughs> yes. screenwriter cross to criminal screenwriter. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, but uh, Austin is very dependent on him all the way to the end. If not so subservient is also a word that could be used. But uh, Yeah, that's probably right, subservient. Mm-hmm. But then in the middle, though, he is very dependent. He apparently uh, is counting on Lee to take him to the desert. He's not going to go by himself. He His goal for the future, his newly found goal for the future to run off into the desert with Lee is highly dependent on Lee. It's what flips him out at the very end is that Lee says he's not going to do it anymore. Um, and then and then at, at that moment, we discover a, a, uh, a, uh, a whole different side of Austin and you end it with that really poignant shot of them kind of squaring off, at least attempting to be equal in power. What's interesting is that the mother coming into the room seems to totally snap Lee out of everything, out of his yeah. dependence on Austin, his desire to screenwrite. As soon as he sees the mother, he just sort of gives everything up. He's like, oh, Austin would never make it in the desert. I don't have time to stick around and write this screenplay. He, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to being a criminal. And he just takes his mother's antiques. Um, yep. So his, his sort of it, – it's almost like the play exists with these brothers in a trance. And maybe that's just yeah. actually chemically true because they're drinking through the like the whole yeah. thing. So they might chemically <laughs> yep. just be in a Certainly trance. Certainly the second half. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. But it, it, they seem to exist in this trance where, uh, you know, they finally see each other again after such a long time. And then they go through this weird several-day-long journey of everything seeming to change and shift around them. And then the mother comes in and they realize, oh, crap, we've destroyed her house. We yeah. let the plants die. We're shirtless and covered in beer. What is happening? And for <laughs> Lee, that makes him go, oh, this was all crazy. But Austin mm-hmm. has to strive so hard to hold on to that. I mean, you, you sort of wonder, like, Austin, man, are you having trouble at home? <laughs> like, Something. What's going like. on with your family life, man? Mm-hmm. Well, also, though, he has had the floor ripped out from under him. You don't know what exactly his life is actually like, but he left somewhere in the north, so a long way from here, to come down to California to pitch this script. He spent, uh, you know, months and months, lots of interactions with Saul trying to get Saul in the room with him, and he accepted it. When he accepted it, his brother showed up, and he ripped that carpet right out from under him. And and several times, Austin says that he's, like, staked everything on this. I got everything riding on this. This is my one chance. So, you know, maybe he he got a second mortgage somehow to pay for this opportunity. Maybe he quit his job to pay. You know, there's some... He definitely has some stakes in it. It's never really clear what the stakes Mm -hmm. are, but it's pretty clear that he's got high stakes in definitely selling the script. And then everything just, like Jackson says, gets ripped out from him. Yep. I mean, the number 300,000 is thrown around at one point, not even for the script, just for the pitch idea. So... Like this is right. this is a huge, <laughs> a huge moment that Austin has built toward, and it's suddenly gone. Um, the other the other kind of interesting, <laughs> I don't know exactly how much time we want to spend on this, but I'm just going to throw it out there, and we can throw it away if we want to. But do you think Lee's actual con was to get the antiques, <laughs> and he just got distracted? <laughs> I mean, first of all, that is absolutely what he was doing in that house. <laughs> 
<laughs> he shows up big... when his mom's not there, and he's like, "Whoa, uh, what are you doing here?" <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, what he is, what Lee is actually doing in the house is never really talked about because the characters are brothers, and you assume they talked about it prior to the play, and Lee lied, but it's never really given yeah. to the audience. What is Lee doing there? Austin's there to watch the plants. Lee, what are you doing there, man? Why are you yeah. here? And at the end of the play, he takes the antiques. Notably, in the second scene, the second scene begins with Lee saying, man, mom's got everything locked up around here. I've been going around and looking. She's got double locks. She's got this and that. What do you think she's hiding? And Austin yep. says, well, she's probably got some antiques. And Lee then, in detail, talks about the antiques and how he doesn't like them. <laughs> so he's been looking at them. You're definitely yep. sure. <laughs> so, yeah. yes, I, I totally agree. You know, if it's okay with you, I have kind of like what I think should be our final conversation point. Go for it, yeah. If you're ready for it. I am. What happens next? <sighs> so the end of the play, Austin wraps the telephone cord around Lee's neck Gets him to the ground, gets him to give the keys back. He's choking him, he's choking him, he's choking him. Finally, his mother makes him let go, then the mother leaves. And Austin gets down and realizes that he's killed Lee. Yep. So he he's investigating him, he's investigating him, and he's like, oh, crap, I better run. And the stage directions are that as soon as Austin makes a move towards the door, Lee hops up, obviously not really dead, and gets in his way. And they square off, and that's the end of the play. Now, that's a huge deal because Lee is scary. We haven't talked a ton about that. We've talked about yeah. how he's dominant a lot and how he threatens Austin a lot. But there is a sense through the whole play that at any point Lee could kill Austin. Without yep. even, and at one point, he sort of even talks about it. Like, who, who do you think kills each other the most? Brothers. Family. Yeah. That's who kills yeah. each other the most. So, I mean, and, and Austin's obviously afraid of that, the whole play. There's a sense of he's got to keep Lee from getting too violent because Lee could and will snap and at least beat him within an inch of his life, maybe kill him. Yep. So now that's happened. Now Austin has almost killed Lee, but Lee gets in his way in the door. They square off, end of play. What happens, do you think? Do you think he just kills him? I mean, do you think Lee just straight out, like, that's the next scene? Of, of of Shepherd's imagination, yeah. Um, I, I you know I feel like I really want to know what's at the end of his western so that I could like <laughs> feed into his brain a little oh, bit in this that's moment. Interesting, because they square off in the same way in the western that he's been writing. Kind of, it's these two characters, and what happens in the script. I don't know exactly how you would do this without having a very conceptualized set, but. It says that it fades to this relief of them standing as if, you know, kind of gunslingers facing down and it fades to kind of a desert view on stage. And it's a very evocative uh, image at the end of them squaring off. And I'd, I'd want to know, like, how he would treat that moment. Would he... I think if they end up clashing, I think he kills him. But <laughs> that's yeah, just that's oh, just man. the way I'm leaning. <laughs> I mean, Lee is want... just ruthless. Yeah, absolutely. And there's golf clubs around. Um, so I think if they clash, he just kills him. But I also wonder, I just wonder if there is also this weird kind of, in, in the way of Westerns, of him seeing strength in his brother come out for the first time. And somehow he chooses to manipulate that rather than just, uh, you know, kill him off. Yeah, maybe maybe he says you know that you've just tried to kill me now you have to write the screenplay for me or <laughs> right or maybe he takes him out in the desert he says oh you've proven that you actually could survive you got a backbone which you haven't had the whole play yeah definitely i guess i should take you out you know i don't know it's i mean, I mean that's a real that's just a... <laughs> kills him <laughs> yeah i think yeah <laughs> because like i i've actually made this connection before on our conversation today that's sort of the backdrop of the play is coyotes kill cocker spaniels. Yeah. That's what they do. And you know what? When a cocker spaniel bites a coyote, the cocker spaniel doesn't just walk away. Nope. The coyote kills them. Yeah. That's what they that's what coyotes do. And that final <laughs> relief of them against the desert, one the thing we haven't said about it is that the sound effect that's supposed to be behind it is one lone coyote yeah. yapping. Yeah. Not two. Not two. And that's not important, the pack. I think. Not yeah. a pack of coyotes, not two coyotes, one coyote. And let me tell you, the coyote is not Austin. 
Yep. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you all get a chance to read this play and interact with it. Let us know too, like what you think about this ending, what the scene afterwards would be. Um, this is just such a great play. I, I we said at the start. I I hope um, I hope someday we get to do this play because <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's it's a dream of ours to do it together to uh, dive into playing these characters. It's funny. It's tense. There's yep. so much evocative language and relationship in it. it. It's such a awesome play. It reads really well. Um, mm-hmm. Plays even better. Like I said, you can watch at least at this point in time. You can watch Gary Sinise and John Malkovich do it on YouTube. I've probably watched that production three times in my life. I go back to it all the time because it's yeah. it's striking. It's really good. And if you want to start stockpiling toasters to send to us at some point, that'd be great too. Uh-huh. Man, the toasters aren't the hard part. It's the typewriter. That's you true. Wrecking a typewriter toasters. every night. Wrecking a typewriter every night is where you start running out of steam. And finding yeah. one that you could actually like work on and use through the play. Mm-hmm. But then you could like, it's not like you can just find old typewriters and beat them up. Yeah. And the house plants are a problem, and the fact that you got to pour <laughs> beer all over is a problem, and toast yep. comes all over is a, it's it it's not eminently producible, <laughs> right? It's a good play to do outside somewhere, <laughs> there you go. like maybe Ooh, in a suburb of Southern California somewhere. <laughs> if you live in a suburb of Southern California, do this play. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, we we do as we as we always say we do definitely want to hear all your thoughts. So hit us up on social media: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have email at noscriptpodcast at gmail Let us know your thoughts on the ending or any other part of the play that uh, you you may have enjoyed or when you were in it you wanted to uh, explore more of the themes than we did. Let us know. Yeah, please like, share. If you, if you like what you heard today, it would really help us out. If you told other people about it, shared the link, where you found it. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. We are loving what we're doing. We hope you all are uh, loving being able to be listeners to a conversation and then hopefully participants on social media after that conversation. Yes, indeed. So we'll be coming to you next week with another play. So uh, stay tuned. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. And I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.